0: Welcome to Good Revenue, where we discuss monetization, go-to-market, and revenue growth. I'm your host, Nita Bidway. We're here to discuss what we can do to influence more effectively, improve profitability, and sustainably grow revenue while delivering more value to customers over time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Good Revenue. Today, we're here with Manisha Shetty Gulati. She's a healthcare executive and a former McKinsey partner who got her start in international development. She was also previously the chief growth officer at Commure and COO at Clarify Health. Manisha talks to us about why proof points matter more than ever for startups and for big companies, why you need to make sure people are willing to pay for the proof points before you build, and why commercialization functions like marketing, sales, and partnerships need to be tightly aligned on an org chart in order to prevent fights about credit, to restore focus on the customer and the business, and most importantly, so you can reallocate resources to the things that are really working versus business as usual. It's a fascinating conversation. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're here with Manisha Shetty Gulati. She's a healthcare executive and a former McKinsey partner who started her career in international development. Welcome, Anisha. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I would love to just dive in uh, because you've had such an interesting trajectory from international development through to startup land. I'd love to hear a little bit
1: about what that journey was like and what was surprising about it. Yeah, I think I started my career, like you said, in international development. I think a part of that was because of the immigrant experience of growing up in the U.S. and going back to India and visiting relatives and always seeing kids who just by luck of circumstance were a lot less fortunate than me. And so I traveled uh, after I graduated to India, I was working at a foundation and we were funding a lot of programs. So we were funding education, microfinance, livelihood. But what I was seeing was that The root cause of so much of the barriers that the people we were trying to serve had were related to health. So, for example, instead of taking a microfinance loan to start a business, women would be taking a loan because a relative was sick, or a girls' education program, girls were dropping out of school because there was an ill relative that they needed to take care of. And so, I started to think more and more. If we don't have access to healthcare from an equity perspective, then we can't do all of these other international development types of initiatives. So that's when I got more interested in healthcare. I came back to the US. I did a joint degree, an MBA, and a master's in public administration because healthcare is very much government, nonprofit, and private sector. And then that's what I've been doing since then. So I was at McKinsey for 12 years. I was a partner there working in all different parts of the healthcare ecosystem. Um, more and more, we were thinking about data and analytics. And I've always been working on how do you make healthcare outcomes better at a lower cost to the system? And as we did more and more of that, it's like, okay, how can we use technology and data and analytics and things like that better? So that's when I made the leap into the health tech space. And for the last five years have been doing that. And to answer your question about what's been surprising about it, Healthcare is such a universal need, but it's so different in every country and it's complex, but also completely interdependent. So the way that payers and providers work and life science and medtech, and the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, all of those things are just interdependent on each other. So to get healthcare to work, for the average person, it requires simultaneous movement of all these different parts. So that's why I think it's been so hard. Yeah, it's um, obviously just
0: being in the US and seeing, you know, the incredible complexity and um, how costly it is for us as, you know, individuals and business owners. It's it's wild. So I, I think it's challenging for everyone. I, it's rare to find someone who feels like healthcare is working well for them. For sure. You know, and one of the things that's interesting is it's a notoriously challenging market in so many ways. And and you're speaking to the complexity and the interdependency of so many factors. Are there a few things that you think healthcare firms are missing today, things that they should be doing or could be doing that maybe aren't as top of mind?
1: Well, I think that there's so much potential right now in healthcare to... Improve different elements of it. And even if you think about technology, for example, being in the space of innovation and people trying to use technology, the barrier to innovation in healthcare isn't actually the technology. There's a lot of amazing technology that's being used widely in other industries that just hasn't taken off in healthcare yet. I think the real barrier is around incentives and understanding what are the incentives of the different players and how do people get paid for what they're trying to do? Because in the U.S., you have a very different system, which is a more fee-for-service system. You get paid per visit. So take an example of telemedicine. So the technology to do a doctor's visit on video has been available for a long time, right? And it was, wasn't was used because the way people got paid was when someone walked into the office. But when COVID happened, the incentives and the way things were reimbursed changed by force to to make it work during the pandemic, and now you see so much, so many things happening because the reimbursement models have changed. And so, I think it's part of the reason I've worked in different parts of the healthcare industry my whole career is because I really feel like you need to understand what is driving the incentives and behavior and payment of the different people in the system. And in the U.S., you have the added complication of employers uh, as well that are funding health care and paying part of your premiums. Whereas in, in the U.K. and in m- much of Europe, it's more of a government social system where they're thinking longer term about your health care over 20 years. But then you've got the problem of being a public system, whereas in the U.S., it's very short term because you're insurance is tied to your employer, on average, you're with the same insurance company for three years. So that doesn't really give people the incentive for long-term preventive care. So I think it's really around thinking through that full ecosystem and what people's incentives are and building your business around that. Because healthcare is one of the only industries where the people you're serving aren't the payers of your product. And so navigating that dynamic is really important. Yeah, the
0: opacity of that market makes it so hard, again, to, to make choices in any, yeah. in any uh, capacity. You know, I'm curious, do you think that the innovation in healthcare will come from existing players then? Because it is so hard for a new market entrance. And that's been one of the, you know, one of my observations just kind of looking at the healthcare space, that there have been a lot of investor backed firms and it seems like they run into similar challenges around regulatory pressures and, you know, things that probably feel predictable to a, a larger, more established firm.
1: Yeah, I've heard every perspective on either extreme and in between, uh, all the way from, oh, tech is going to be a big disruptor of healthcare and see what Amazon and Google are doing and and the the existing uh, big legacy players are dead, to the other way around, which is at the end of the day, you're going to have hospitals and you're going to have payers and all these little companies are going to be the ones that struggle. I think the answer is, of course, somewhere in between. We're never going to not need hospitals and specialty care and a way of paying for our care and so and in order for those things to change you have to take away from people who have something in order to make it more equitable so i think from a systemic point of view that's really hard to change so i think the answer is in the middle which is that the innovation will come from smaller companies because they're able to think differently and take uh, take a different angle but as bigger companies see that, they'll either start to absorb it by partnering with those. There'll be a lot of MA activity, I think, uh, for consolidation of a lot of the solutions that are out there. But by doing that, they will slowly adopt those. It just may not be from the inside out that the innovation comes and maybe through partnering, acquiring, and seeing new models out there that work. So for example, a lot of the care organizations that are coming up now are very personalized to specific healthcare needs whether it's mental health care for adolescents or the lgbtq+ plus community and what are their needs and so in the long term it's hard for an organization that's very focused like that to scale to the level that's expected from a tech ipo and and be a giant company but seeing those models work and proving out actually do have happier patients and better outcomes and better costs, those models will start to get adopted into more mainstream healthcare. Are
0: there any other opportunities that you think um, founders, investors, maybe acquirers should be considering or thinking about?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few areas. One which we just talked about a little bit is around settings of care. So where do people get their care? So that I think will change. It won't be that people physically go to a doctor every time they need care. There are more options. And my dad, for example, just got his hearing aid at Costco and he's got an app and he's figuring the whole thing out. And so and they have he did his whole hearing test at, at Costco. And so I think healthcare is moving to meeting where the consumer where they are more and more. And so that could be in retail, that could be online, that could be through prescription pharmacy, that could be um, through different ways of interacting with your your physician. So there's a lot of space there. I think that area is moving. Another area, like I've mentioned, was personalization of care. So what are the needs of different groups of people and how do we make sure it's targeted There's been so much talk, for example, of the elderly, we're going to have a huge portion of our population in the next 10 years be over 65, which means they're on Medicare. And that group of people has a very different set of needs and a a different uh, way of interacting with technology, although they certainly are interacting with technology. So how do we actually think about care at home, serving that elderly population, Um, who are now working longer, staying more active, doing different kinds of things. And and so there's a lot of innovation opportunity there for different groups of people. And then uh, another area is that having been involved in data and analytics for such a long time, it used to be that there was a race for data. So we wanted data about people. We needed to connect the data. We want pharma companies to open their clinical trial data. And everyone wanted data. And looking forward, I think the data itself is going to be more of a commodity because now we have methods of connecting big data and doing things, and we will find a way for that to be all HIPAA and healthcare compliant. But it's actually around, the, so what? How do you actually take the action? So if you can predict that a person's going to end up in the hospital and they're more likely to, and they have some social needs like transportation needs to be able to get there, and you can, you can know so much about people now. But actually, how do you execute that insight or that predictive analytics in a way that works for doctors and nurses, super busy workloads and um, and the way people get paid in this industry? So I think all of those are interesting areas. Yeah, it definitely seems like it comes back
0: to the economics at the end of the day, too. Economics and outcomes.
1: Yeah, because when ta- when the market was good, People all wanted to innovate and it was cool to have partnerships with a lot of startups and the, And a lot of companies had innovation and digital budgets. But now uh, when the market has tightened and healthcare providers at least don't have the COVID subsidies that they had anymore and um, supplies are getting more expensive, the workforce is getting burned out. So the proof point for what is ROI is is really important now. And I think that's what's going to be important for entrepreneurs and companies to succeed, because it can't be that, oh, maybe in five to seven years, you're going to have a healthier population. No, it's got to be in 12 months. What's the ROI that I'm going to see as the customer that's going to go straight to my bottom line somehow? So I think the bar has gone up for being able to prove that in a shorter time frame.
0: How do you think about building a successful business model in such a complex, opaque market, since you've done this in all kinds of different organizations? Just an easy question
1: for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's simple. Uh, no, there's no magic bullet to it. But I do think partnerships early on where you're testing the models out, getting constant feedback. I mean, this is tried and tested in software, right? To have an agile model, do beta testing, figure things out. But it's it's also true in services, too. And healthcare is still very much services industry. There can be a lot of tech and tech-enabled uh, pieces. But To be able to do that early on, get feedback, iterate, and then to have those proof points and reference cases, that is really critical. And so being able to do that successfully requires trust. And I don't know if a lot of traditional healthcare organizations trust big tech players that much or trust that... A little startup is going to be around for the next 10 years. And so a lot of it is around how do we grow in a way, and this affects the sales and marketing model as well that you put in place, but how do you grow in a way where you have partners, where you can test early, get proof points, make sure that people are willing to pay for those proof points and Mm -hmm. then move forward. So I've worked with a lot of amazing people who've come from outside of healthcare and they see so much opportunity and they think, they say, oh, we can build this. It's so much better. And I'm the Debbie Downer that's always saying, well, no one's going to pay for that, even though it's better and faster and more amazing because they've already locked tens of millions of dollars into their electronic medical record contract or because, you know, that's not how they get paid. And so um, having those partners and proving out the the business model of being getting willing to be paid from specific target segments, whether that's employer or payer or direct to consumer. So uh, there's all kinds of models being tried out right now. That makes so much sense to me because I'm really
0: passionate about this question of understanding willingness to pay. It's been the unlock in my experience, too. And it's also something that I don't think we talk about early and often enough.
1: Yeah, because when we do customer research, we think, do people like this? Do they like using it? And it's great. It's great that a nurse really likes using that. But is the CIO going to pay for it out of the IT budget? That's a totally different question. Absolutely. And I think it's the weights that you're
0: alluding to that. Yeah, we like it, but is it your 73rd priority or your fourth priority? Right.
1: That's right. And especially because all of these changes require some kind of change management as well. Someone's got to do their job differently. And even if ultimately it's better for the patient, like you're saying, if there's, you know, 75 things that you have to do, what's the most important thing that you have to get right? And the 70th thing is going to fall off that list. Well, one related
0: question to that then, and you you just alluded to it, but is direct to the customer in this, the end customer, the end user, the patient, the way to bridge some of those gaps in terms of willingness to pay?
1: Yeah, there have been early examples of that, but I think the jury is still out. What I've observed really is that there are, there is willingness to pay from either for what you might call luxury items. So, you know, if you've seen a lot of the online um, companies or pharmacies, they've actually grown in things like hair loss or skincare or things like that. Um, but then, or also from people who have the means to pay. So, there are the concierge medical companies of the world saying, do a full body scan, do sequence your genome so that you can see all of your DNA and what, what your predictive risk factors are. And there are people that are paying out of pocket to do that, but that's not going to be scalable to the whole population because it's people who can pay for that. And we're already very knowledgeable healthcare consumers that are doing that. So thinking through how is that going to apply to people who are lower income and on Medicaid or people who are elderly on Medicare and the broader set of population, I think we're still far from a direct to consumer model.
0: One more question on kind of business model generally. One of the things I think is so interesting about your profile, particularly in startups, is that as a commercialization executive, you're overseeing multiple functions, marketing, sales, partnership, you've done operations. I know you've done a lot with the uh, product roadmap and, and maybe product prioritization too. Do you mm-hmm. think that that is a model that has helped to get scale in your experience? Is that a model that you think works, whether it's healthcare or... Is it something that other sectors
1: could learn from? Absolutely. I think that growth is cross-functional <laughs> in nature, right? It's everyone's job to grow the company. And these older models of okay, marketing does something, and there's an NQL, and then you hand out the NQL to the sales team, and then the sales team, you know, the sales team takes it through the funnel. I think that's outdated. And we know that people consume content differently. Customers, even if it's the the biggest healthcare organization in the country, they're also people and they're affected by how they consume products in their daily life. And we know that in healthcare, on average, you need more than eight touch points with a brand or a product in order to even consider it. And you're getting those touch points from all different areas, um, including thought leadership and other things that are harder to measure in a traditional sales situation. And then to add on to that, partnerships too, we already talked about the ecosystem and how do you partner across it. So partnerships are also critical too. So I feel that it's really been helpful to link sales, marketing, partnerships, and have a very tight-knit relationship with product to be able to grow in that iterative way and to see what customers really need and to evolve with that. I think we always say we should be obsessed with the problem that we're trying to solve for the customers, as opposed to a technology. So how do you do that in a way that where you're listening to the customers, not just what they want for the product, but also how are they consuming information? What do they trust? And how do they want to engage with your organization? So I think that's been important. I think the other reason... Why it's been helpful to tie those functions together is from an organizational point of view, which is you don't have to worry about credit of who did what. So I was just talking to a founder about BDRs and is the is the BDR dead, right? Outbound calling. It's a hot topic right now. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Yeah. And in different companies, you yeah, I'm sure you see this all the time, but it could be sit in marketing, BDRs could sit in sales, um, sometimes even rev ops uh, runs part of that. And in a world where those are all separate, I've seen that people try and claim credit for the different pieces that the different groups do. And if you tie all the functions together, no one has to fight for credit. You just see what works and what your customers need. And you can look at the data because you could have a ton of NQLs, but if none of them are converting to a signed contract, what's the point of an MQL? So you need to measure it all the way through the funnel and look at all the metrics together. And not agree more. It's really refreshing hearing you
0: say this too in a sector that, you know, I don't do as much in healthcare, but I, I think this has been universally accurate in other sectors. So it's really interesting to hear that.
1: Good. Good to know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's and it's exactly what you're saying because in my experience and what I'm seeing is that there we do have these excessive silos in all of these teams. And people are prioritizing the team goals over both the customer goals and the business goals. And it's yeah. to the detriment of the entire organization, I would also argue, to the detriment of the customer. And it's very expensive, right? And maybe no one cared when money was cheap and uh, free-flowing. But part of what I am really interested in is just this, you know, as people are more open to kind of revisiting business models and reorienting around the customer, this feels like a real opportunity for organizations too. Definitely. One last question kind of on this is, um, and this was also just building on something you were talking about with um, MQLs and kind of that, the culture of producing metrics that you're measured on, that excessive cost of acquisition and kind of, I think that pressure, especially earlier in the funnel, I think of heavily on marketing or on BDRs if you've got a org with that. What do you think revenue leaders or commercialization leaders can do to help CFOs and CEOs Move through this transition because my sense is that sales and marketing leaders get it. You know, if the teams are aligned, if partnerships are aligned, if we're focused on you know pipeline that converts and customers we retain, like these longer term metrics, I find the go to market teams are pretty easily convinced, or they're already there. That sometimes the CFO is more comfortable with, you know, a, m- a more traditional waterfall um, annual planning projection system. Uh, the CEO again may or may not have enough expertise. Or they've existed in an organization where this worked for the past 15 years, but it's not working well today. So again, this is another big, big question for you. What else could we do to maybe to change this?
1: Yeah, it has to be customer back because the data that is convincing is what does our customer need in order to get the information that, like we talked about, that they trust, that they feel is credible, that they um, think the company is going to be a partner to them because in B2B enterprise sales, it's not just a, you sell it and you're done. You are you continue to be there in an account management or customer success capacity for your customers. So what do your customers actually need and want? And that could be thought leadership as opposed to a cold call, right? But um, But building the case from the customer back and then saying, okay, how are we serving that customer in a way that they need in order to get this information. Because sometimes it's also not just what you said about, okay, it's worked for the last 15 years. It also depends on what kind of company you've come from and whether it has a brand name or it or you're brand new. And there are other factors that influence it. And so you need to, there's no one set of tactics that works for any company. You have to think about where you are, where is your brand or set of products relative to what customers recognize and there there's some sometimes we're attacking needs that customers don't even realize they have until they they see the product or the services and what they can do and so the only way really is to gather broader data which i know you've been working on i've seen some of your stats but that here's how customers actually want to consume information and learn about companies and then work backwards to say are we actually doing those things and are we meeting them and what's actually converting what's actually working It's important to look at the data, too, uh, in a more objective way instead of just rah, 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 we're filling the funnel. Actually, what's working and what isn't and being willing to move your resources around accordingly, even if it means that something you tried didn't work.
0: And that leads to the question I was going to also ask you about transformation, because, well, I think people think about transformation in this kind of um, la-di-da, like highfalutin way sometimes, even adjusting a business model or talking about some of this, you know, back of house um, planning to to revenue to retention change. These are really business critical choices. So given all the experience that you've had, and I know you've done this both kind of on the consulting side and as an operator, how do you think an organization can most effectively move through transformation to implement change?
1: This is a really hard thing to get right. And it's different if you're a public company and you have quarterly earnings that you need to report versus if you're a small startup that's pivoting every six months because you're trying to please your investors uh, and and your customers. So I think that what is important to get right in transformation, to me, it comes down to two things. One is the incentives and the second is people. So for a bigger public company, I was just talking to someone about this challenge as well, which is they were at a larger uh, med tech company, and they were saying, you know, all of the business units, they know that they're going to get disrupted in the next five years. But what they're measured on is the next one year. And when the market is bad, everyone is retrenching to what they're measured on and putting blinders on to what's going to happen five years from now. So when companies transform, it's partly around How do you balance the longer term view versus shorter term to be able to incentivize people in the right way? And then how do you attack the culture part of transformation, which is super hard? And in my consulting days, we used a framework of the influence model, which is you need to bring together a couple different things for a transformation to work. One is so everyone talks about incentives as in like, do are people financially rewarded or not? Okay, so incentives are part of it. And we talked about that. And the second is an understanding of the why. Do people actually know why you're transforming or is this some edict that's come from the top? And do people understand what that means for their own day-to-day job and why it's better for that individual to be transforming, whether it's a digital transformation or a business, transforma- business model transformation? So it's that Why? Then there's the skills and capabilities. Do we do people actually have the skills and capabilities to be able to make the transformation? And that is all the way up and down the chain. A lot of times maybe the C-suite is thinking about this all the time, every day, but actually does the last frontline worker know what it means to him or her and how does that change their job going forward and do they have the skills to do it? And then the last piece is role modeling. So is this coming from every manager about acting that change and talking through the change and and what needs to happen. And so all those pieces have to be aligned and fit together for a transformation to happen at a big company. At a small company, I actually think there's been too much pivoting. What I've seen is that people are trying to make it work and they're seeing the next opportunity, and especially in healthcare, going through COVID and coming back. Everyone was pivoting to do something to help towards COVID. And that's great because there's also a societal positive impact to that. But now then there's a retrenchment that happens and what's the longer lasting business model and how does that apply in a post-COVID or a COVID endemic world? And so there's been a lot of change. And so in some ways, I feel like for transformation for other companies is to save smaller companies and say focused on the problem you're trying to solve for the customer. And you may need to pivot around the business model and around how people pay you or do you have to take risk or put skin in the game and, um, and on the product itself, but to keep staying laser focused on the problem you're trying to solve for the customer as opposed to the next shiny thing and technology. Yeah, I think this is really great. In addition to all the work that you've done,
0: you also sit on a public company board. So I feel like you have such a really incredible experience, both on the uh, the board level and as an operator. But there's two questions here. One is kind of, what does that experience bring to your work as an operator? And the second question is, boards obviously have an outsized role, particularly in earlier stage companies. So how do you think boards can be more effective when you are trying to drive change, whether it's a business model or culture or something else?
1: Yeah, to answer your first question, I feel that it's helped me tremendously to be on a public company board in terms of translating into being an operator in a couple different ways. One is having that long-term shareholder perspective which is that on a public company board as a director you are constantly thinking about the faceless shareholder and how are they going to get value over the long term sometimes they do have faces and they're bigger institutional investors you have to deal with them too but at keeping that perspective at all times like is the management doing the right thing because a lot of times when you're in it and you're in it every day there's a bias towards an idea that you believe is going to work or an acquisition you're going to make so really having that longer term shareholder perspective. And you often hear the expression noses in, fingers out, right? When you're an operator, you're doing all the things. And when you're a board member, you need to be pressure testing and asking the right questions. And so I think that combination of long-term thinking, as well as that noses in mentality is really helpful because it helps you take a step back from the day-to-day and think about Balancing long term and short term. And the management's focused on that quarterly earning. The board is thinking about, okay, what does this look like in the next few years? And how does the arc of that translate uh, to the shareholders? So that's been really helpful. I also think, and it could be just that I'm on a very good board with a good board chair, but it's been a great example of bringing in diverse perspectives in a very purposeful way in terms of the way that the board is constructed. Everyone is bringing expertise from different areas and has something that they bring to the table that maybe other people on the board have not experienced, whether it's industry expertise, functional expertise, having been on a company of that size. And so making sure that everybody has a voice. And that it's not just the loudest person in the room and then thoughtfully synthesizing those perspectives to bring it back to the CEO in terms of feedback and pressure testing. That's been a really good learning experience to watching that in action. So I try to bring all of those things to my practice as an operator to put that hat on, to put the board hat on for a bit and to think through the longer term or the more objective view as opposed to being in, in the everyday rush of it all. For Your second question around the impact that boards have, I do think that it is very different when you have a private company board, and it could be a PE-backed company, so you have one investor, but it could be a VC-backed company where you have many investors, and the boards there have a dual hat on, because on one hand, they're advising the company as a board member but on the other hand it's an investment right that they have made that they are shepherding over a longer term so there's kind of a different set of incentives and priorities in play for that and boards of startups do very much influence how the team is thinking about what's important And you saw that through all the cycle of growth, 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 growth at all costs. And now, oh, okay, well, how much are you burning? And when are you going to get to profitability, et cetera? So the metrics that are valued for what the management team is trying to achieve when it's a private company board and you don't have shareholders that are objective people that are looking at earnings, that I think is very much influenced by the board and what are they prioritizing because they're investors as well. And so- We've probably gone through many extremes of that and it's important to then figure out what's the right balance. And I think both VCs and startups are thinking through that right now. Yeah. It's such a lively time. I think that it's the, it's the time
0: of um, consequences is what this era feels like. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for sharing so much with us. I have one last question for you. Given all of your experience What do you think that high performance companies do differently? And are there learnings that we can take away from them?
1: Well, I'm learning more and more about this all the time. So this is a quest for all of us. I would say one important part is the obsession with the customer and what customer needs are and working backwards from there. And everyone says they're obsessed with the customer, but a lot of times we're also obsessed with our own products and technology and and things that we're trying to sell. So being obsessed with the customer from a product, but also from a, as we talked about how they consume information is really, really important. But then the other part of that is how do you reallocate your resources accordingly based on what you're learning? And for big companies, there's a lot of research that if you make bold bets, and you actually allocate resources towards them, you're more likely to succeed than if you have a small innovation team or a digital team on the side that's trying to do something, but it's all pet projects, and then the pilots die off and nothing's actually changed. So how do you reallocate your resources and incentives accordingly? That's another really important piece for high-performing organizations. And then the last, which is always the most important, is the people element. So how do you have a working environment where everyone feels inspired by the mission and understands how they're contributing towards that in a meaningful way? And with especially with all the M&A and things going on, it, it's actually really, really hard to maintain a culture where people trust the leadership. What layoffs are happening now, and it's it's a harsh reality and it's needed in a lot of these companies, but how do you restore trust? How do you continue to make sure that you have a high performing culture that is driving results? And also that it's harder when we're in a hybrid world too, and people don't actually see each other and make the same meaningful connections. And so that's another area where people are trying to figure out what does it look like to have meaningful culture and human connections at a company in a hybrid world like we're in right now. But I think that the high-performing companies are the ones that get that organization and people part, right?
0: This has been such a rich conversation. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. It's been so much fun. I love your podcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Good Revenue. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review, follow the show, or share it with a friend. We're a news show, so it really helps other listeners find us. And if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions for episodes or guests, please reach out to us. You can find our information in the show notes. This show was produced with the help of RPS Audio, experts in sound and podcast production.